Club. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hello, good afternoon and a big thank you to Karnika for looking after you today on mornings. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull and this show is Out of the Box. Today I'm chatting to Tongan Australian writer Winnie Dunn. Winnie is the general manager of Sweatshop Literacy Movement and the editor of several critically acclaimed anthologies. Her work has been published in The Saturday Paper, The Griffith Review, SBS Voices, The Guardian and The Huffington Post. And she's here to tell us all about it. Winnie, thanks for joining me on the show today. My loyal Lily. Thanks for having me. Winnie, what was the shape of your family when you were growing up? That's really interesting um, because I, my birth mother died at a really young age, so I was four and uh, she left behind me, my sister and my brother. And so I used to live in a housing commission in Miller, which is a, like a suburb in southwest Sydney in Liverpool. And I, with my two siblings, we lived with my father, but right next door we lived next to my grandmother and my aunties. And so my grandmother and my aunties uh, during that grieving period uh, were raising uh, me and my two siblings. And so... Um, I had a very big family from kind of my earliest memories. Um, And even though I'm mixed race, people always find it interesting that both my parents were mixed race. So they had Tongan and English heritage, but that I only ever grew up with the Tongan side of my family. And so I grew up very culturally, uh, but still with a kind of lot of privilege that I think whiteness brings. But you're not aware of that when you're a kid. You're just kind of running around on bikes <laughs> um, and uh, giving your aunts a headache. Um, but yeah, that, that was the shape of my family. And then when my father remarried uh, a beautiful Tongan woman, um, who's my mum as well now, basically, um, she had a son as well. And then then they, my father and her had four girls together and we moved out to Mount Druitt. And so... Um, and she had a big family as well. And so I've, I've just been around very strong and beautiful Tongan families from a very young age. And I think because of my unique upbringing um, that allowed me to be connected to so many more Tongans than I otherwise would have. And to have so many mother figures as well, I think is really important, um, especially because Tongan culture is a very matriarchal culture. And so, yeah, lots of women, lots of families, lots of cousins. Um, yeah. Amazing. And when you were six, you moved to Mount Druitt. What was that like? Oh, it was interesting. It was the first time that my parents were kind of capable of buying a house, which I think is really unique for my cultural background. Um, A lot of Pacificas and Tongans don't get that opportunity. And so we moved to Mount Druitt because it was cheap out there (laughs) at the time. Um, And... I don't know, Mount Druitt to me is kind of uh, a beautiful and tricky one because I grew up in like the 20, like I was a teenager in the 2010s 
And that was a significant time for like Struggle Street, the documentary, and this other documentary that nobody really knows about, but Plumpton High Babies. And Plumpton High School is the high school that, that is up the road from me. Um, and just having that stigma around Mount Druitt that you're, you're poor and you're on drugs and you have kids young and um, being a, a mixed race brown girl on top of that and um, coming into my teenage years through all that stigma um, was really difficult for me to comprehend. And so I wasn't as proud of Mount Druitt as I am now while I was growing up. And also I think that self-hatred was really fostered by by my parents, naively, but with a lot of love, sending me to a religious school <laughs> instead of Plumpton High School because they were like, no way you're going to have a baby at 14. Um, so, yeah, so I went to a religious school up the road from Plumpton High School and it was very monocultural uh, and very strict in terms of how they expressed kind of the, the quote-unquote rules of Christianity um and so yeah it was it was kind of difficult for me to learn how to love myself with all that stigma and with all that kind of isolation um during that time so yeah it's been a big journey from where I was um in Mount Druitt in high school to like where I am now as an adult yeah and you've you've called it a monocultural high school is that a nice way of saying there were a lot of white people there yes yeah (laughs) Because only the white kids could really afford to go to private schools. <laughs> and like the rest of the ethnics that were there were either, um, they either were rich enough or they just had parents who were scrounging around working like two jobs, which each, which was my parents, uh, to kind of make ends meet for the fees. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, when I first started, um, high school in like 2007 I was one out of like three Tongan kids and I was related to one of the other Tongan kids um so yeah it wasn't it wasn't huge um at all and growing up with such strong Tongan women and being so in touch with your Tongan heritage what's it like going into this monocultural school where where you've only got three people like you there yeah I mean it's it's really intense and I think also the layer of that of me being mixed race like when I grew up I really bought into the idea that I wasn't white enough to be valued but I also wasn't Tongan enough to be a real Tongan and so I felt very much not anything and so I really tried to lean into my whiteness or my my white privilege per se because for some reason without even articulating it there was somewhere in the back of my mind that was like I'm seeing that white people are getting more than me they're getting more respect um, they're getting more recognition they're getting more acknowledgement Um, you know they come to school with their Ziploc bags of blueberries and strawberries and you know I'm coming to school with like no food and like scabby <laughs> like being an absolute scab at lunch times and asking everyone in my year for packets of chips um so I, I really tried to lean into that side because I I there was something in me that was telling me that there was a systemic problem not that I knew those words when I was in high school but I was like if I could be more white maybe I'll be more valued and so yeah I, I very much tried to like not that they were real boyfriends, but, you know, have little 
school boyfriends that were white in high school. I didn't want to talk to any of the like Asian guys or the Indian guys or even any of the Pacifica guys, the small number of them that were there um, because I told myself I was too good for them, but I wasn't good enough for white people. So I had to earn their, their kind of love, um, which is really damaging uh, when you're a teenager and going through such a vulnerable period to then feel like you have to prove yourself to people who like for all intents and purposes, like we're just all people. And so <laughs> the fact that I felt like I needed to prove myself to a certain group of people was, yeah, I think really traumatizing, but I'm lucky in the sense that the friends that I made in high school, um, even though we've all moved on now, which is what happens naturally, but the friends that I made in high school in kind of year 11 and 12, for some reason, out of just maybe divine intervention, we were all young girls of colour. And so I was Tongan, one was uh, Pakistani Muslim, one was Indonesian and one was mixed race Filipino. And we just kind of banded together in our final years of high school. I think out of like instinct almost to be like, there was something that, was connecting us that we didn't articulate, but that we knew anyway. And I think, you know, that's why I get frustrated when people are like, oh, kids are too young to understand racism or know what it's about. And we shouldn't talk to them about it before they're ready. And it's like, no, I think children and, and, young, and young people are always ready to talk about it. Uh, they just need that encouragement. And at the time that this is all happening, Chris Lilly's um, character, Jonah from Tonga, is quite popular. Do you think that maybe reinforced some of those stereotypes that you were feeling in school as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went to high school during the height of Summer Heights High popularity, uh, where every Australian was in love with Chris Lilly. And so there was this white boy at school who I had a crush on, um, who would come to school in like a lava lava, which is like a like a cloth skirt, um, and a ukulele and go around quoting Chris Lilly and basically bullying all the younger kids as the minstrel character Jonah would in the show. And he found it so hilarious. And all his friends found it so hilarious. And just to see that kind of white actor in brown face empowering other young white men and boys to behave in a racist way... um, was really confronting to me even now just talking about it and looking back it's like I know how that happened but why did that happen um and you know like Chris Lilly had been around even before that like doing S Mouse which was purely blackface um and even uh dressing up and pretending to be like a savage native um in one of his shows as well and so yeah having Chris Lilly kind of hanging over my head as well made it made me feel like I had to prove myself extra hard because I didn't want people to think that just because I was Tongan just as Jonah in the show is Tongan that I was stupid or illiterate or hypersexual or violent um or that my brothers were seemingly the same thing um but it was hard like I think Chris Lilly really set a standard of like this is what Pacific Islanders are we're allowed to make fun of them Um, And they should just be grateful that we even acknowledge their existence. Um, And I think it took a really long time. Like it was only last year 
that Chris Lilly got booted off Netflix, right? So it's been a really long time um, where Australia's been defending Chris Lilly. And yeah, it's only been recent where like Australia's kind of looking back at itself and being like, yeah, why did Chris Lilly happen and, and why did we let that happen? A lot of my early work in terms of essays and articles was very much centred on Chris Lilly. I want to talk about a relationship you had with one of these boys who for some reason or another thought that that kind of Chris Lilly stuff was was cool. Tell me about that. Yes. So I ended up dating that guy who would dress in a, like a lover lover or what Tongans call a tupenu and a ukulele for some reason. I think because he was just the most popular guy in the year, I was just like, I have to date him. And I was very much one of those people. So in Tongan, we call it fear balanging, like wanting to be white. And so I was like, if I can date him, because he was very resistant to dating me. I was like, if I can date him, then I'll be white <laughs> by proxy or something. It was strange. It was strange my logic about <laughs> why I was into this dude. Um, and because he was so into Summer High Thai and Jonah from Tonga, like he started looking at Pacific Islander women um, and sexualizing them because he, for some reason, Chris Lilly just really awoken a, a kind of colonial gaze in him that was like, brown women are the ones to like date and they'll do anything for me. And so I think even though he probably wouldn't have articulated like that, I think in his mind too, it was, it was very much a thing of like, I have more power and control. And of course he wasn't thinking that consciously, but I think on a subconscious level, a lot of white men think like that. And so we did date for a little bit. Um, and yeah, it was really poor. Like he would kind of, um, any kind of, even though he told me he loved Tongan culture and he wanted to have all these mixed race babies and and learn about uh, and go to the islands and, and learn about Tongans and stuff. Like when it came to it while we were dating, like at any moment he would kind of almost punish me for having a culture. He'd be like, why can't you go out and party? Or why can't you sleep over? And why can't you do this? And, and why do I have to, why can't we just go out, how come I have to come to your house and talk to your dad? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, that's just how I'm raised. Like, even the fact that I told my parents that we're together is like, so not a cultural thing. Like, and so he got really frustrated with my culture very, very quickly. And then basically just dumped me in front of my house and was like, see you later. And I was, I was heartbroken. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just think looking back on that relationship, especially now, because um, from what I've heard, you know, down the high school line that you hear every couple of years, um, you know, that he's really against racism and he's like so about like racial empowerment. Blah, blah, blah. You know, for me, it's just like, oh, but uh, people can change. But I'm like, bro, I remember when you were quoting Chris Lilly in a Tupenu and calling yourself like an honorary fob. Like, I don't know. I don't know how much you can change from that. But, you know. Um, well, let's dedicate we'll a song to this absolute legend. <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. What a, what a great guy. Um, I want to I jump into the song that was playing on the day that things ended, you know. Let's go full circle. Yes. What was it? Yes, it was Swimming Pools by Kendrick Lamar. And what does this song mean to you? I think to me it means like having such a toxic relationship 
but you still want it. And like, how do you get out of it if you still kind of want that toxicity in your life? Um, and I, I also think it's a beautiful song um, about what like minoritized people have to go through in terms of, um, you know, alcohol abuse and, and what that actually means. Um, and yeah, and I think there's all kinds of abuse. Um, and I think that relationship was one of them. This is Swimming Pools by Kendrick Lamar, and this one comes with a language warning. Pull up. Frank, Frank. Headshot. Frank, Frank. Sit down. Frank, Frank. Stand up. Frank, Frank. Pass out. Frank, Frank. Wake up. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Now I done grew around some people living their life in bottles Granddaddy had the golden flask, backstroke every day in Chicago Some people like the way it feels, some people want to kill their sorrow Some people want to fit in with the popular, that was my problem I was in a dark room, loud tunes, looking to make a vow soon That I'ma get fucked up, filling up my cup, I see the crowd mood Changing by the minute, and the record on repeat Took a sip, then another sip, then somebody said to me Nigga, why you babysitting, only two or three shots, I'm a Show you how to turn it up a notch First you get a swimming pool full of liquor Then you dive in it Pool full of liquor Then you dive in it I wave a few bottles Then I watch them all flock All the girls wanna play, they watch I got a swimming pool full of liquor And they dive in it Pool full of liquor I'ma dive in it Pool Frank, Frank. Headshot Frank, Frank. Sit down Frank, Frank. Stand up Frank, Frank. Pass out Frank, Frank. Wake up. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Frank, Frank, Frank. Okay. Now open your mind up and listen to me, Kendrick. I'm in your conscience. If you do not hear me, then you will be history, Kendrick. I know that you're nauseous right now, and I'm hoping to lead you to victory, Kendrick. If I take another one down, I'ma drown in some poison, abusing my limit. I think that I'm feeling the vibe. I see the love in her eyes. I see the feeling of freedom is granted as soon as the damage of vodka arrived. This is how you capitalize. This is parental advice, and apparently I'm over influenced by what you are doing. I thought I was doing the most that someone said to me. Nigga, why you babysitting? Only two or three shots. I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch. First you get a swimming pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. Pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. I wave a few. Wake up. 
Welcome back. You are listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. This show is Out of the Box. And right now I'm joined by Tongan Australian writer Winnie Dunn. Winnie, when did you discover your love for reading and writing? Yeah, that's interesting. So from a really young age, I think I enjoyed the act of writing uh, because I think being a writer and writing are two very different things and I think people can confuse them. Um, So the act of writing for me, like putting words down on paper, Um, also the act of reading, just kind of reading any words that I could find on pieces of paper on the back of like the toilet freshener bottle, you know, and reading that. Um, For some reason, I just had a love of language. And so I knew I wanted to be a writer as soon as I got a principal's award for like a year two poem that I wrote, um, which was about spring. And I just, I swear I just used every descriptive word under the sun to describe spring. And I think my teacher saw that I loved words and that I knew a lot of words that maybe not a lot of year two kids knew, especially one that was Tongan. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, getting that principal principal's award was like, oh, wow, like you can be recognized for writing and, and people enjoy writing. Is that a thing? Um, and so, it, yeah, and so I loved writing and the act of writing and reading for a really long time. Uh, but it wasn't until I was at university that I, that I was kind of thinking about being a writer and what being a real writer meant. Um, and I wasn't taking a creative writing course or anything. In fact, I just, I did a Bachelor of Arts. Um, but I don't know, a Bachelor of Arts, I think, can open so much um, of your thoughts about language and literature and um, and inspire kind of critical consciousness. And so for me, I was like, okay, like what does it mean to be a real writer and, and how do I find that? And so I did a lot of internships and freelancing and um, getting published in the student newspaper and uh, performance readings where I was getting paid like five bucks to come out to the city. Um, um, But I think those were all very much signs of me trying to find what it meant to be a real writer, Um, which I'm still learning about till this day, I think. Had a lot of people in your family been as passionate about education and writing and university? No, unfortunately not. I was the first person in my family to go to university. Wow. Um, Yeah, my parents um, and my aunts and my uncles, they just didn't have the privileges that I had um, growing up um, to be able to even think about um, a HSC even most of the time. And so... Yeah, it, it was re- it was a really special moment when I um, got my acceptance letter and my dad drove me down <laughs> to the Kingswood <laughs> Western Sydney University campus um, on my first day, uh, you know. Um, yeah, and so they just had no idea what to do. Like they, they didn't know anything about like signing up to courses or the difference between a tutorial and a lecture. Um, they didn't know the structure of an essay at all. They hadn't read a book since they were like 12, you know. And so I had to like learn all this stuff on my own. But I was lucky that my parents were really supportive in the sense that they were just like, you know, you don't have to work and we'll just look after you at home. 
as long as you're at uni and you're and you're looking after yourself there and you're getting your degree like that's all we care about and so yeah that was really lovely for me because I think oftentimes when I speak to people who have like educated parents or who have a history of family members going to university and even doing stuff like masters or a PhD or becoming a doctor um you know they tend to look down at a bachelor of arts and just be like oh you wasted your money <laughs> but no I think I think that course was a really life-changing uh event for me and for my family too like they really felt like they got a degree just as much as I did and when we're talking about life-changing events I want to talk about one particular lecture that your friend took you to while you were at university. It was a lecture taught by Michael Muhammad Ahmad. Mm. Tell me about that. Why was it so important in your life? Yeah, so this was interesting because it wasn't even a set course or lecture. It was like a free writing workshop that my student newspaper at the time was running. And so my friend at the time who was uh, interning at the student newspaper was seeing that I was writing and I was getting really into kind of poetry and performance reading and again, trying to find what it meant to be a real writer because I had no idea. And she was just like, oh, come to this writing workshop um, and see how you go. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I remember walking in and I remember seeing this like Arab dude with like flared jeans and glasses uh, and a beret and like a, like a collared shirt and just being like, I'm gonna teach you about writing. And he just looked like any other leb or like brown dude I would see on the street, like walking around Druitt. And I'd be like, who's this guy? <laughs> you know, because I had only ever, I had only ever seen doctors of literature that were white. I hadn't, I hadn't in, and I only, from them, I only ever learned a majority of white literature. Like I think in my bachelor of arts degree, I read maybe two black women, African-American women, maybe one Greek writer. I don't, even, I don't even think I read any Aboriginal writing or First Nations writing during that time. And so, yeah, to see a guy that just looked like a guy that grew up down the road from me, just being the smartest person in the room and showing me Western Sydney literature for the first time. Like during my uni years, I really bought into the idea that Mount Druitt and Western Sydney was the place where art went to die. Like you could not be an artist if you were from Western Sydney. And so I had these big dreams about going to the city and and meeting real artists and getting out of the suburbs and like proving myself. Um, but uh, Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed really showed me that um, writing from Western Sydney and especially writing from Western Sydney um, that's written by people of colour um, is kind of the most important literature that Australia can have um, or that they will ever have kind of that that's excluding like First Nations writing. But yeah, it was it was incredible to me to see that art could really good art could be made in Western Sydney and could be taught by somebody who grew up in Western Sydney and represented um, those marginalised identities from race and class and gender. And so yeah, I remember being the little nerd that I am or that I was. And after that, after that amazing workshop, I remember going to Dr. Ahmed and being like, can I have your reading list? <laughs> it was something I used to say to try and impress all the lecturers. And then he just looked at me and he was like, what are you? And nobody had 
ever asked me that at university before? And I know that question kind of has racist connotations, but for me, it was like, oh, like somebody has actually realized that I'm not white or they're not pretending that I'm white for the first time in my kind of two and a half years of university. And so I remember telling him, I'm like, oh, like I'm Tongan. And then just the look of disbelief on his face is like, what? <laughs> um, because again, like with my with my white privilege, I don't necessarily look uh, Pacific Islander. And so um, he was like, come, come to the sweatshop workshop and I'll, I'll teach you how to write. And it was just kind of like, again, like a, another form of divine intervention in my life where I was like, oh, wow, I was really looking for somebody to tell me what a real writer was. And now I'm going to go find out. And then I went to my first ever sweatshop workshop. I read this dreadful piece about being a lizard or something, something terrible. <laughs> and then, and then um, yeah, Muhammad just looked at me and he was like, you can't write. And then, oh, I was just shattered after that. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean I can't write? And so I remember then wanting to prove myself being like, no, like I'm a writer. I can do it. Like, tell me what to do and I'll go do it. And so I really had to go back to basics when I started to learn what being kind of a real writer meant. And we will get into that in a few minutes time. I do want to get into your time at Sweatshop. Yes. But first, let's go to a song, one that kind of relates to what you were saying about, you know, the university not teaching you this culturally diverse writing. Mm-hmm. You've chosen a track by Thelma Plum. Yes. Tell Work me about blokes. It. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I love this song because you you go to uni and you're so impressionable and then you meet all these like even in Western Sydney uni, you meet all these privileged white dudes who just think they know everything and like who think they know everything about you just based on what you look like. And, you know, they've they've had histories of like families of their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and sisters all going to uni and it's just something that you do. And then for me, I was like, oh, like the I was even cringing back then before I even knew before I even knew what the term woke blokes was. And I think even every woman across every race can just attest to the fact that, yeah, a lot of white dudes like to pretend that they're feminists or they like to pretend um, that they're not racist, but really deep down, they're just a white dude at the end. An amazing introduction to an amazing song by Thelma Plum. Let's jump into it now. This is Woke Blokes on FBI Radio 94.5. And this one comes with a big old language warning. I'm so sick of these woke blokes living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not like me. He's like, kill the boy down the road who hurt the girl real bad. Unless he is my friend or plays in my favorite band. He says, change the day, you should be grateful, you're only staring the pie. Babe, there's only so much I can do And your engine's gotta stop But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone And I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not 
Thelma Plum and Woke Blokes on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now, I'm chatting to writer and general manager of Sweatshop Literacy Movement, Winnie Dunn. Winnie, you briefly touched on Sweatshop before. Can you explain to me what it actually is? Yeah, so Sweatshop is a literacy movement that's predominantly based in Western Sydney um, that teaches critical thinking, um, creative writing and training in writing and um, employment opportunities in writing. Uh, for culturally and linguistically diverse uh, writers. And so we're very much for First Nations people and people of colour coming together to learn how to tell their own stories and to, more importantly, be paid to tell those stories. Because I think there's um, a real travesty in the arts where, like, you're not paid for your work and that's that seems to be, like, a normal thing. And I And I get that some people have the privilege to do it and that's fine, but I think especially for First Nations people and people of colour, especially those that are from Western Sydney as well. It's like we definitely need to be paid for our work because sometimes we don't have any other options. Um, and so, yeah, Sweatshop's all about fostering a critical conscience, consciousness about our intersections of race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, learning how to craft that into fiction um, and being really good at it. And so... Yeah, I think I think Sweatshop is a really phenomenal space for um, marginalised people who want to be writers to become writers. And you're the general manager now, but, you know, talking about getting paid, you started off as a paid intern. How do you move forward from that? Yeah, how rare is that, <laughs> like paid internships? Because uh, I remember before that, before I uh, joined Sweatshop, I was I was I was definitely an unpaid intern in a lot of situations and so yeah the the fact that I was being paid to basically be an arts administrator uh, was really amazing and so yeah it just kind of started off with me um, and Dr Ahmed just kind of um, me just like sending emails and photocopying stuff and just going into the office every day and and sending emails and just um learning from Dr. Ahmed as much as possible. And then um, eventually it just so happened that we got some funding and a spot opened up for a general manager. And because I was already interning, Muhammad was just like, look, just fill that role. I'll train you up in it. 
and then we'll go from there. And I think that's the beauty of Sweatshop is that we are really about training because I think when opportunities in the arts do arise, you somehow have to have like 20 years of experience <laughs> um, in a field where there's not many jobs uh, and there's not many opportunities. And so you're kind of forced to be an unpaid intern if you're trying to get eventually to those jobs. And so, yeah, I had a beautiful moment of being trained up into this really important um, position um, and then learning the ropes from there and just kind of being chucked in the deep end. And also on top of that, I was learning not only to be a writer, but also an editor. And so in kind of the first year that I was at Sweatshop, we decided to print an anthology. That's called the Big Black Thing Chapter One. And by the way, you can buy all our anthologies at www sweatshop.ws we'll pop a link um, to that one in the programs page on fbiradio.com yes <laughs> some of those books are discounted now so definitely get on that <laughs> um, but yeah I remember working towards um, the big black thing chapter one and going to high schools in western Sydney and teaching young people there how to write going to the um, fortnightly workshops and jamming with all the other writers and learning how to write and then like uh, like Two, two days a week during the day, I was like, I'm the general manager of this company. Okay, let's do it. And so, yeah, I think I think I was really lucky. Not many people get such a fast-tracked introduction into the arts um, and such fast-tracked training. Um, but, yeah, I think Switch Up, that's what we're really good at. And growing up in Mount Druid, is this where you saw yourself ending up? Not at all. I really thought I was going to end up as a high school teacher, <laughs> which is not a good idea. Uh, but I really thought I was going to end up as a high school teacher or I was just going to work like full time at a bank or something. Again, I think those kind of where I imagine myself also, again, speaks a lot to my privilege because uh, not many Pacificas even have the opportunity to even imagine those scenarios for themselves. Um, let alone being a general manager um, of an arts organisation. And so, yeah, um, I definitely, uh, I did not see myself here, but I'm glad I am. In a few minutes' time, I want to talk about the projects you've made with that platform. But first, we're going to jump to a song. You've chosen a Destiny's Child song today. Say My Name by Destiny's Child. Um, I chose this song because people get really impressed when I tell them that Destiny's Child was the first concert I ever went to. <laughs> it's like my favourite story to pull out at parties. It'd be like, oh, did you know I saw Destiny's Child when I was five? Um, and people just have a look of disbelief on their face. Um, and so I was a big Destiny's Child fan from like four to now. So <laughs> um, I definitely had to have them on the track list. Dark child, nah, nah. Say my name, say my name.
tuned into FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming online that song was Say My Name by none other than Destiny's Child and it was a selection by my guest Winnie Dunn. Winnie tell me about Sweatshop Women. Yeah so Sweatshop Women um, is an anthology series that I edited um, that's purely written edited and designed by women of color and the reason why Sweatshop publish these anthologies um, is because during my early years at Sweatshop, I had a real frustration with my university's Women of Colour Collective, um, which I had joined um, in like my second year or something. And they were very much against having conversations about intersectionality or having a solely women of colour space uh, where only women of colour could come and chat and talk. Um, And, you know, they they looked at me when I was suggesting those things and just being like, well, you're a racist, Um, which is not true at all. And I think that's a really easy way to get out of really hard conversations about um, what we do to kind of achieve justice and equity and equality. And so um, I brought those frustrations to Sweatshop not knowing what to do about it. Um, And Sweatshop's response was that, well, why don't you make your own women's collective here? We've already got women of color here, so you're fine. Um, and why don't you get them to write in a space that's just for them? And I was like, yes, that's actually what I wanted to do. I don't know why I was wasting my time with that other collective. And so um, it started off with me getting a grant um, and organising a bunch of women of colour authors in Australia who had been published to come and help me co-facilitate the kind of first years 
uh, the first year of that of those workshops. Um, and I did a call out in like local newspapers for kind of new writers to come in. And the response was overwhelming. Like, I think I got like a hundred emails in a day or something at one point, because there was just so many uh, diverse women and women of color um, across Sydney who wanted their own space to write. And I think, you know, that really came off the back of the global Me Too movement as well, which was started by Tarana Burke, like a black woman. And so, yeah, it was really inspiring to be like, I'm helping create a space that other women of color really need. And so, yeah, they learned from the kind of best writers in the country, like um, Rowana Gonzalez and Hua Pham and uh, Rhonda Abdul-Fattah and Michelle Decretzer and Sarah Ayub and um, all these incredible women, Michelle Law, you know, all these incredible um women who had made their own path years ago when it was, I think, so much harder um, to do it. And, um, yeah, then, yeah, Sweatshop Women really became kind of Sweatshop's biggest seller. Um, it was launched at the Sydney Writers' Festival and Perth Festival and in Melbourne. And um, I think it's a very loved book, um, which I'm really pleased about. Isn't it interesting that you thought Western Sydney was a place where the arts would come to die and then, you know, you've made the first, it's the first in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think it's definitely the first women of colour anthology in Australia to be edited and designed by women of colour. I think um, when people read Sweatshop Women, they often forget that that's an element as well and it's not just women of colour writing their stories and here we go, we've printed it in this book. But on every level, we really tried to have uh, women of colour right in the centre and I think we did. And so, yeah, I think that's what's really powerful about it and why people uh, responded to it so well and why in the middle of the pandemic last year, like Switch Up sold out of Switch Up Women Volume 2's like first print run in like a month. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm really privileged to be able to have learnt from the best and, and have my name on such a um, groundbreaking anthology. Beautiful. And for anyone hoping to access those books, we will pop the details to that up in the programs page. We're talking about beautiful, strong, powerful women. And with that, I do want to jump to another song that you've chosen. What is it? Uh, it's Do Up by Lauren Hill. Um, I chose that song because one of my aunts who raised me and who I'm named after is the biggest Lauren Hill fan I have ever met to this day. Um, and she played me all of Lauren Hill's songs and albums when I was growing up. And um, to hear a black woman's voice that was so beautiful and so strong um, as I was being raised, I think uh, really attributed to the kind of person I am today. Let's jump into it. FBI Radio 94.5. Some guys, some guys are only about that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing. It's been three weeks since you were looking for your friend, the one you let hit it and never called you again. Down and you called him again. Plus, when you give it up so easy, you ain't even fooling him. Yeah. 
like you did it then and you probably can. Talking out your necks and you're a Christian. A Muslim sleeping with the gin. Now that was the sin that did Jezebel in. Who you gonna tell when the repercussions spin? Showing off your ass cause you thinking it's a trend, girlfriend. Let me break it down for you again. You know I only say it cause I'm truly genuine. Don't be a hard rock when you really are a gin, baby girl. Respect is just the minimum. You're tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now I'm chatting to Tongan Australian writer Winnie Dunn. She is the editor of several critically acclaimed anthologies and her writing has been published in the Saturday paper, the Griffith Review, SBS Voices, The Guardian and The Huffington Post. Winnie, that's quite the resume. Where do you move forward from here? Honestly, hopefully my own novel. That's what I've been working on. Um, and that's what I've been trying to get done. Also, Sweatshop's going through like a new phase of anthologies. And so we're currently working on racism's, uh, racism stories on fear, hate and bigotry, uh, which will be launched at the Sydney Writers Festival in May. And so that's going to be really exciting because I think like it seems so obvious that you would have an anthology series about racism. 
but it's kind of just in the, been in the background of a lot of anthology series, especially in like the growing up Australian um, series where like racism is definitely there, um, but it's kind of in the background or it's centered, but it's not the main topic. And so Sweatshop was really like, let's make the main topic about racism and let's have all the writers respond to racism so that when anybody tries to deny that racism is a thing and that it doesn't and and that it doesn't exist or um, we can just give them that book and say, go, go forth and take it. Um, so, yeah, working on racism, racism at the moment, working on my own novel at the moment, which I hope um, will be published in the next year or two. Are you allowed um, to tell me more about your novel or is that a secret? No, it's not a secret. <laughs> I hate writers who pretend their works are <laughs> secrets. Like ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, so my novel is about a mixed race Tongan woman, a young girl growing up in Mount Druitt um, and kind of learning how to love herself I think I know that sounds really corny but I think the fact that like there hasn't been a Pacifica Australian novelist yet um, speaks volumes to like how much that kind of writing is is needed and and how necessary it is and so yeah it's about it's, it's definitely a coming of age story of like what what does a young woman do from Mount Druitt when she's mixed race um, when she's Tongan um, and she's learning how to walk between all of these worlds almost um, and how do you find yourself through that. Western Sydney has been the backdrop for a lot of your growth and a lot of your accomplishments thus far. Is that something you hope to continue? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think people are starting to realise that Western Sydney is a real kind of melting pot, not just um, uh, in race and uh, not just in race, but also in kind of our creative abilities, you know, from music to performative art to literature, um, we kind of can do it all. And so um, I think a lot of Australians, uh, especially those in Sydney, are, are looking towards Western Sydney to kind of show them what's um, what's the future of our art scene. Um, and so, you know, people like One Four especially, I think, um, and uh, are showing that. Winnie, thank you for joining me on the show today. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for having me. I do want to end on what you just said, the the boys that put Western Sydney kind of on the map in the first place. Absolutely. What song have you chosen? Absolutely. I chose The Message uh, by 1-4. Just want to give a shout out to the 2-7, um, uh, our hood. And, uh, yeah, that's on Gang Gang. This is The Message by 1-4 on FBI Radio 94.5 and don't go anywhere, Brie Kennedy is up after this. If you do not wish to receive this call, please hang up now before the lid making from the correctional complex. We're telling one for the Western Sydney, up in Ramon on that lockdown. Free Freddy, free Levy, free me, free Rondo, free Justin, free Jeff, free the 70, free the 1-4. JM, I'm a one for veteran. Boss on my hood, cause I back my section. When I met the streets and slapped that thing, lad, I knew I found my obsession. Had me running the ball, no question. Swear any op I saw, I pressed him. If I sell YP or Lex, couldn't leave his chest without no injection. One four, we've been putting in work. Since knee high, them days on the curb. Now I'm proud to say to this day forward that the seven put it up on a shirt. Just fill up the car and urge, got things on hips, watch ops disperse. I back my shank and you pull yours and see who will take off first. Don't, don't, don't 
and whinge and cry like me, so Mako grip and ride. Have your team all wet and wild, right where my crew bring clips and slide. Wanna talk them clips and try? This is a different side. You boys just bitch and hide. Come out and ride for your friend, cause someone got dipped and shh. Someone got dipped and shh. Mm. Get down when I grip that steel. Hands up when I bring that hammer. Come through while I pull that ching. Have your head face down like a Southwest ganger. One four, we ain't got no manners. Only if you test my crew. If you ain't a part of this beef and you wanna talk shit, you can get some too. See me eating well. Pull out my ching for my show and tell. Call me festus when you hear the bell. I'll be wrecking ops like I'm wrecking Ralph. We on the block so there ain't no fouls. I'll be scoring points when I kick him out. I'm on the road and it's getting loud. When you see me approach like another route. I'm on the high from the ganja. My sticky can put you down. Under. These ups are broken, I feel the ache that I toss to go half on a bumper. The cocker got me feeling jumpy, while the dust and got stuck in Jumanji. Getting triple digits like I'm Scotty Pippen, whipping in the kitchen, Golden Ramsey. Ooh, now that I'm down for the 2 double seven no. Done for my set, you already know. Knocking them down like the dominoes. I know that they know that Spenny's about to blow. All of my dubs coming in the road, but I'm still writing raps on my racking phone. Retaliation is a must, ain't no maybe, ifs or buts We took numerous trips around there, but lad, that's something I can't discuss I don't wanna end up in cuffs We heartless, wrong or right, regardless, yeah, I'm back my blood Scott got and he left his uzzo, shit and he's still out talking tough They don't know about taking risks, them big lads, they ain't made for this We invest in shakes and shivs and if there's beef, we taking trips I can't call them ops, like we beefing flops I got friends looking at ten, you watch yours get put in a box Put in a box Who wants smoke? They don't want smoke Trust me, mothers, them boys ain't ready 21 what? But one got knocked Ha! I guess that makes them 20 Free up Freddy and Lebs Plus my co is Deacon Chef Making moves what them boys follow Playing these games like Simon says They call me Chingy not Cause the way that I squint my eyes When things get iffy Then I'm known to wave and just swing my knife When it goes in them Then I push the blade a few few more times Two seven drill them Them boys victims They don't ride just bitching life We twist up while them boys just dancing Strictly Shiv and shank him, push that sword like captain Step on deck and flank him, too much talk But no action, they came for women I'm not here romancing, I'll use anything Just to get the win, I don't take no chances Don't step on the field, cause weapons are still are used to play this game Don't believe in your home, cause setting a stone Is where you'll see your name If I lack when I'm out, then I stomp till I see his brains Leave these pavement stains, I'll do it again and again Do it again and again that's reckless shivers. If it's done by me, so be the YP, then like there ain't no difference. Don't pull out for decoration, this thing goes all in him. That's fishing. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.